Obadiah in the Old Testament. That's our book tonight. Obadiah. Not too many Obadiahs being born anymore, right? Well, I mean, anybody, anybody know an Obadiah? I was, uh, you do? God bless you. So Bible, a good Bible name going to waste. I came across this quote in my reading this week. It's about an ancient form of punishment for murderers. It reads like this. The body of the murderer is sometimes tied to the corpse of his victim. It's from a book titled Sociology Based Upon Ethnography. I don't know what that means, but that's the title of the book. Published in 1893. If you were alive in 1893, you were smarter. A particular chapter was on Tibet. There are other accounts of ancient people punishing murderers in this manner. They fasten the body of the victim to that of the killer, tying shoulder to shoulder, back to back, thigh to thigh, arm to arm, and then they drive the murderer from the community. So tight were the bonds that he could not free himself, and after a few days, the decay in the body of death spread to the living flesh of the murderer. Nobody would help him remove the body of death. He had only the frightful prospect of his own slow death by gangrene. Did you just love that? Drawing from this physical analogy, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 makes a spiritual application of the body of death. He describes himself by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body of death has several different names and descriptions in uh, Romans. Paul says in another place, I am carnal. In another place, he says, sin dwells in me. In another place, he says, evil is present with me. And uh, most commonly, he calls it the flesh. This body of death is the flesh that continues to exist within you after you are saved. Think of yourself as the new spiritual person you are, having been born again, but surrounded by your flesh. Now, why am I telling you this ghoulish tale? Because Obadiah is going to present the destruction of the nation of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. Esau and his twin brother Isaac are the Bible's classic illustration of the struggle of the warfare between the flesh and the spirit, between the body of death and the spiritual life that we want to live. So in Genesis, there's this comment. Now, uh, these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. Also this, thus dwells Esau in Mount Seir, Esau is Edom, and these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So the Edomites are those who are descended from Esau, and the Israelites are those who are descended from Jacob. The story of Esau and Jacob is that of twin brothers, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. The boys were not identical twins, and actually they were very opposite even in personality. The record given back in Genesis 25 begins as Rebekah is about to give birth to these two boys. It says in Genesis 25:22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau was delivered first. He was the older, but Jacob would become the prominent son. Jacob had a spiritual discernment that Esau did not have. 
Esau was a man of the flesh and did not care at all for spiritual things. In the New Testament, he's described as profane, which is a word that in the, the original languages means outside of the temple. We use the word profanity to talk about bad language and stuff, but the word profane means outside of the realm of the temple, and so it indicates somebody who's not interested in spiritual things at all. The famous episode with Esau, he so discounted his birthright as the firstborn son uh, that he traded it to Jacob, you remember, for a bowl of soup. He didn't sell his birthright because he was so hungry that he was about to perish, nor because there wasn't anything else to eat in the home of Isaac, but because his was uh, a desire of the flesh and he was willing to trade all of his spiritual heritage for a whim of the moment. And so when you read that story, it's not that he wasn't going to die if he didn't have a bowl of lentil soup. I'd rather die than eat a bowl of lentil soup. But anyway, he wasn't going to die. It's, it's indicative of his personality. He says, what do I care about a spiritual birthright when I could have a delicious bowl of lentil soup? Or you can substitute your favorite food, i.e. spaghetti and meatballs, uh, but, uh, which, by the way, the sons of Italy make a delicious spaghetti and meatballs, uh, and I enjoyed that the other day. But anyway, so the idea, he just, you know, and really, uh, we'll get more into this a little bit later, but anytime we choose the flesh over the spirit, that, that's what we're doing. We're, we're in a situation where we think, what do I care for spiritual things? And the things of the Lord, when I could be doing this right now, I could be, you know, I could be getting drunk or partying or I could be, you know, whatever it is. That Man, that's so much more profound than being a child of God. And so that's the Esau. The man who had the birthright was the man who was in contact with God. He was the priest of his family. He was the man who had a covenant from God. He was the man who had a relationship with God. In effect, Esau said, I'd rather have a bowl of soup than a relationship with God. And so Obadiah 1.1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Obadiah, of course, one of the minor prophets about whom we know absolutely nothing. His name was common though, and it means servant of Jehovah. He received his prophecy in the form of a vision. God revealed to him that an ambassador from a nation allied with Edom was visiting other nations to convince them to join forces and instead attack Edom. As you continue reading, you realize that the Lord was allowing these nations to align against Edom in order to accomplish his purpose of destroying them. Why destroy Edom? Well, in verse 2, behold, I will make you small among the nations. You should be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? It was because of a kind of national pride that God would destroy Edom. He calls it pride of heart. It's an attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. Edom's pride came from three sources, it seems, as we read these verses. It came from her defenses and her alliances and her wisdom. Her defenses are seen in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? 
The Edomites considered themselves impregnable and invulnerable because they were situated in a region of rugged mountains with high cliffs that protected them from attack. Petra, the major city, could only be entered by a narrow winding canyon. And by narrow, I mean 15 feet at its widest. A dozen men could easily defend it against an entire army because they couldn't really funnel through. Even if the entrance were breached, the Edomites could carry on a successful defense from the mountains. In their culture and at that time, it was hard to imagine a more secure spot. Petra, by the way, was only discovered in the late 1800s, but it's now a major historical site and tourist spot in the Middle East. Secure as they were in their high mountain cities, God would bring them down. Verse 4. Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Thieves generally leave something behind. Grape gatherers leave gleanings behind. In fact, thieves... I don't want to bring up bad memories, but how many of you have been robbed? Your house has been, you know, burglared and stuff. And, and uh, I know Gene and Kelly, their house was robbed a couple of times. And uh, both times, the aftermath, the thieves, I mean, they just grab stuff and pull stuff and throw stuff. And by the way, if you keep your gun under your mattress, it's not a good idea because that's the very first place that thieves go. It's like... I'll keep something under my mattress. No one will think to look there. Uh, But they just toss your whole house. I mean, it'd be a lot easier uh, to just unplug stuff from the wall. Just take a minute. Maybe I would be too kind of a thief. I would, you know, but but, uh, I guess it's part of thievery to just tear stuff up. So they generally leave something behind. Uh, And the same thing if you're gathering grapes. But when God destroyed Edom, he said it's going to be complete and thorough. Nothing was going to be left behind. Edom's alliances were part of her pride, and these are seen in verses 6 and 7. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasure shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Uh, And and so uh, it was her alliances that were going to uh, turn on Edom. So it's a godfather kind of a moment here where you just don't know who you can trust. If you're not allied with God, you're going to be allied with the ungodly at some point, and those alliances will fail you at best and destroy you at worst. How many marriages, for example, have been destroyed by the so-called best friend or co-worker getting inappropriately involved? These alliances are... Uh, not good. Edom's wisdom was the final component of her national pride. If you look at verses 8 and 9, he says, I will not, will I not, excuse me, in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau. Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Edom was noted apparently as a center of wisdom and knowledge and understanding in the ancient world. Located along a notable trade route, Edom absorbed much information from many parts of the world, sought out by other nations for counsel and direction. Now, according to the Word of God, Proverbs 1-7, for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so there is a wisdom 
in the world, but human wisdom is nothing to be proud of. We need the wisdom of God's word to counsel and direct us. Uh, Bible scholars are not in agreement as to when the events of verses 10 through 14 occurred. The traditional view is that Obadiah was referring to the Babylonian invasion of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. As the Jews in Judah were being overwhelmed and overrun, the Edomites rejoiced and turned on them. It says in verse 10, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. You should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. <clears throat> you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. And so Edom's reaction to the Babylonian invasion of Judah and Jerusalem was to rejoice and to gloat. <clears throat> they aided in the capture of uh, those who were trying to run away. They plundered what was left behind, and um, God was holding them accountable. Uh, they, they actively betrayed the Jews, cutting off possible escape, and delivered them to the Babylonians. Obadiah closed this shortest book in the Old Testament by looking ahead beyond even our own time to the future restoration of the nation of Israel. He used the technical phrase, the day of the Lord, which describes the last days of human history that begin with the darkness of the tribulation period on the earth. It says in verse 15, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Obadiah predicted a future judgment by God upon all nations. It will be centered around their respect for my holy mountain, a reference to Israel and Jerusalem. God judges nations with regard to their respect for Israel. And, um, you know, like it or not, um, wh whatever your ethnicity, wh wherever you, you know, whatever nation that you're proud of, and certainly our own nation, the United States, uh, we're not the center of things. Uh, Israel is, is the center of things when it comes to human history. And, and uh, it had to do with what God promised in the Garden of Eden, that he would send a Savior, and that Savior would be born of a woman, and that woman would be a Jewish woman, and, and uh, the Savior would be born through Israel, this nation that God has a special relationship with. And though uh, they have been scattered, they had been scattered for a couple of thousand years, he brought them back in the last century, and uh, they're the center of the world's attention, and they will continue to be. Uh, and, and so... Uh, we want to be aligned with Israel. doesn't mean that everything Israel does is good or, or that we have to agree with it. doesn't mean that they're saved because they're not. There are saved Jews, but Israel as a nation isn't looking to Jesus Christ. They're not waiting for the rapture and those kinds of things. And that also is a, a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament says that God will regather his people in unbelief in the last days. 
and then they will turn to the Lord through the great tribulation. The great tribulation is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's primarily, well, it, well, it's primarily for Israel, even though it affects the entire earth. It's to turn Israel's attention back to their God and to prepare them for the second coming of Jesus Christ when they will look upon him whom they've pierced, the Bible says, and they will receive him finally and fully as their savior. And so um, we want to have respect for Israel. We want to be Israel's ally uh, selfishly if for no other reason uh, because uh, God has respect for those nations that have respect for Israel. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in uh, Shepherad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So obviously this is looking far to the future beyond our own time. When it says, then saviors shall come, this word saviors indicates that Jesus Christ will appoint judges, is what it means, or co-rulers to help him rule and reign during that time. And so again, we're looking forward beyond the church age to the reign of Jesus upon the earth, what we call the thousand-year reign or the millennial kingdom because uh, millennium, a thousand years. And, and um, um, we're going to have some part to play in that time co-ruling and co-regents with Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I want to be the mayor of Disneyland. That's, that's my, it's kind of my posting, you know, but wherever the Lord, I'll probably be a street sweeper in Disneyland. Actually, I don't think Disneyland will survive the tribulation, but it might. Uh, you never know. But uh, anyway, uh, we will be raised up to, to rule in that time. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, the, the Edomites are going to be destroyed, and uh, they won't uh, exist. And so uh, this is uh, obviously an encouragement to Israel. Um, at the time, Obadiah was bringing this prophecy, uh, and more, so, more than an encouragement, it was a remembrance that God had a plan and that he was working out his plan through human history uh, and that he uses nations, he rises nations up and he sets nations down, um, holds them all accountable uh, to various standards and um, especially how they deal with the nation of Israel. Now, as I said, Esau, Esau pictures the flesh and Jacob pictures the spirit. That's, that, that's what the Bible says. And uh, they become a great illustration of that continual warfare. So what is the flesh? It's a little hard to define, and commentators are kind of all over the map. The flesh is not my sin nature that I was born with. I know that because the Bible in certain places distinguishes between my sin nature and my flesh. Uh, and so sometimes we'll talk about our old nature and how we have two natures warring within us, the, the old nature and the new nature. But the truth is the old nature has been uh, destroyed. 
um, but we still have the flesh. And it, it sounds like it's parsing words and splitting hairs, but uh, nevertheless, the, the Bible does distinguish between my old sin nature and uh, the flesh. And the flesh is not the physical body either, not by itself. The physical body has its needs, but they are neutral. The best I can do is say that the flesh is something I find at work within my physical body. It is a tendency, it is an inclination, it is impulses to use my physical body in sinful ways. Uh, and uh, depending on the course of my life and when I got saved and all of those things, I, can, uh, I spend a whole lifetime feeding that flesh uh, you know, and, and developing habits of the flesh. Uh, and defaulting to those habits. Uh, am I doomed to be overcome by the body of death that we read about? Well, no, not at all. Because when I'm saved, God the Holy Spirit comes in me. He comes to dwell within me. And now I can yield to his tendencies and to his inclinations and to his impulses. I can use my physical body instead of serving myself and my own uh, lusts and desires, I can use it to serve Jesus. Uh, and so I have this choice uh, between the flesh and the spirit, and the flesh will never get any weaker. Uh, it, you know, there, there's a, a, a thinking that the devil throws out there at us that if I indulge in my sinful, lustful impulses a little bit, uh, you know, it's kind of like it, when you're hungry you sit down to a meal and you eat and it satisfies your hunger. We have the understanding that these sinful impulses, um, if I indulge them a little bit and keep myself within certain boundaries that I can, you know, keep it at bay. Uh, but that, that just never works. Uh, first of all, it's sin while you're doing it. I mean, you, you can't just sin a little. Uh, I mean, you can in one sense, but it's still sin. And so the devil, he's so, such a deceiver. Do you realize that the devil, it, all he lives to do is to lie, rob, kill, and destroy. And he starts by lying to you, getting you to lie to yourself, saying, man, I have these impulses, and maybe if I just, you know, indulge them a little bit, keep them kind of in this sphere. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years and, who've said, I never thought I would go that far. Uh, I always thought I had it under control. Uh, we always think that we're standing quite a ways from the ledge when we're actually already leaning over, seeing how far we can go before we actually fall. And, and that's when the Bible says, eventually, be, uh, your sin will find you out. Uh, and, and so we can't indulge the flesh at all, and it never gets any weaker. When I was first a Christian, I thought as I grew spiritually, you know, I'd, I'd get to be really strong, and my flesh would get really, really weak like those mermaids and mermen in The Little Mermaid. Do you ever remember those? When Ursula gets a hold of you, and she turns you into, ah! You know, I thought, well, that's it. You know, my flesh will be so weak and stuff. And, um, you know, your flesh, it just never goes away. I mean, it, it, you, you have to stay in control of it. You have, to, you have to guard against it. You have to constantly be yielding to the spirit and not yielding to the flesh. Um, and, and, and yet, having said all that, then you think, well, wait a minute, the spirit of God indwells me, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's whispering to me and he's leading me and he's using the word of God. Uh, in order to give me uh, options and to tell me the right thing to do. And if I'm not doing it, it's because I'm ignoring his leading. 
He's not a neutral party. He's, he's, he's working to keep me walking with the Lord, to sanctify me day in and day out. Now, the defeat and destruction of Edom becomes for us an illustration of the ultimate destruction of our flesh when we are absent from our bodies, and it becomes an illustration of the daily defeat of our flesh as we yield to the Spirit of God. Uh, and so, uh, spiritually speaking, that's what Edom can do for us. It can show us what God thinks of the flesh. It is something that needs to be totally eradicated, and one day it will be. Um, there's no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven because as long as I have this physical body, I will have the flesh, I will have this body of death, um, this, these impulses and desires uh, in order to sin. Uh, but when I, when I leave this body behind and when I am raised from the dead with a new glorified body, then I will be free from sin forever. And so we're going to have this struggle, uh, but as Warren Wiersbe says, and I quote, there's no need for the believer to be defeated. He can always yield his body to the Spirit and by faith overcome the flesh. Uh, and, and not to put a burden on any of us, but that's just true. It has to be true. And so the idea that I couldn't help myself or I couldn't stop myself or that the temptation was overwhelming or those kinds of things, those things are just not true. Uh, I, I must determine to yield to the Spirit or to yield to the flesh. Now, if I say that I have no sin, I'm a liar because, as I said, I'm, I'm still going to have to struggle with these things. But any moment of any day, I can know that I can have victory over the flesh. And it's usually that I don't really want to have victory over the flesh. I, I get weary in well-doing. I get tired. I, I get angry. I, you know, whatever it might be for you that's a trigger. Believe me, the devil knows you in and out, uh, and, and he has ways of trying to trip you up and get you to thinking that, you know, what's the use, or if I just do this a little or whatever. And we, need, we just need to realize that the flesh has been overcome by the Spirit. And so every day, what will it be, a bowl of soup or your birthright as a child of God? That's, that's really the... I mean, we look at Esau and we think, what a, what a jerk that guy was. You know, here he, he... All he thought about was just his next meal, basically. Uh, but a lot of us, you know, when we give in to sin, we're living on that level, on that carnal level, on that fleshly level, saying, all I care about right now is a, this bowl of soup, whatever it might be, this momentary pleasure, not really thinking about serving the Lord. Uh, w whenever we yield to the flesh, to the body of death, we are Esau. It's not that we're hungry, rather that we are actually despising spiritual things. It, we don't have, it's not that we're trying to satisfy some overwhelming hunger that, you know, I'm going to die if I don't get that bowl of soup. It's that at that moment, we've decided spiritual things are just not important to us for whatever reason. Uh, even if it's as simple as knowing that if I sin, grace will abound. Paul the Apostle says, yeah, that's not a good attitude. You, you should never think that if I sin, grace will abound. If you sin, grace will abound, but you don't go into... That's not the way to go into battle. That's not the proper way to wield your sword. Uh, you don't want to think, well, I can sin a little here and a little there, and what's it going to hurt? It hurts a lot. And so don't despise spiritual things. Instead, walk in the Spirit... And the Bible says you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Uh, and, and so tonight as we go into our time of prayer, you know, maybe the Lord's speaking to you about uh, some 
seemingly harmless habit or something that, you know, that you've kind of been returning to or thinking about a little bit too much. You know, in the book of James, it says uh, we sin when we're drawn off by our own lusts. And there's a, there's a teaching in there that each of us has kind of a, over, over time, we develop our own sin personality. I mean, you, you ever have somebody, you ever, you ever share with somebody a struggle you're having and, and they say, well, yeah, I, that's no struggle at all for me. I, I don't have that struggle, you know. Uh, well, they have a struggle somewhere else. You know, with some people it's, it's immorality, with other people it's alcohol or substance abuse or whatever it might be. And you may look at that and think, well, I don't even understand that. Why would you have a problem with that? that that's, it's stupid to be involved with that. Uh, but you have a struggle, and we all have our own struggles. And maybe, maybe you've been defeated today. Maybe you've given in to that temptation, and, and you're feeling a little defeated. Well, you need to, you need to repent, and know that grace will abound, that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and, ju- and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you have to have this attitude that I'm, I'm not going to give in to the flesh anymore. I don't have to do that. I need to really fight that. I need to struggle against that. Uh, it, it's not a matter of you know, walking in the flesh one minute and in the spirit the next. It's a matter of, of really getting back into the battle. Uh, and, and doing that. And so maybe that's your situation. Maybe it isn't. Maybe there's something else going on in your life that you want to pray about tonight. But um, uh, know that you can have victory over the flesh. And whatever it is that you're struggling with, how, whatever, however hard it has been and whatever hold it has on you, uh, God can break that hold. Uh, and, and he wants to. And he wants you to believe that he can by faith. Amen.